not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I'm the author of the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide. I write the blog Unpickled, and that's where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of recovery in 2011. I tell my stories there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Well, don't compare your insides to someone else's outsides. That's a recovery gem that I first heard right here on the Bubble Hour from the show's founder, Ellie Strong, and it's great advice. But what happens when we become so detached from ourselves that we can't even see the connection between our own insides and outsides, never mind anyone else's? The same internet and social media that creates healing connections through recovery blogs, podcasts, recovery support groups, is also the source of the problem in so many ways, as today's guest shows through her memoir, Highlight Reel. Author Emily Lynn Paulson peels back the layer of deception she unwittingly employed to mask the chaos and pain behind the beautiful images she showed to the world. Her book is engaging and insightful, and she joins us today to tell, her more, to tell us more. Emily, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I really enjoyed your book. Congratulations. And thank you for your willingness to share some uncomfortable truths for the sake of helping others. Absolutely. So I want us to just get to know you right off the bat. So I'm just going to ask you to tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Sure. So I am a wife and mom of five. I live in Seattle, Washington, and I've been sober three years. And my journey to sobriety really came after a long lifetime of falling into many different addictions. And I think as a lot of people, when they get sober do, I looked at my life and really said, how the heck did I get here? Um, So I really started trying to discover myself and discover different ways of doing things. I started reading a lot of memoirs and I started writing and trying to discover what happened in my life and how I got to this point. And what I thought would really be me writing about a mom getting sober turned into this memoir of these patterns and these behaviors that had really shown up through my entire life. And just like you said, with social media being very positive and connecting and also being very detrimental, I was the person who looked like they had it all. And I was really able to hide all of these behaviors and these addictions behind those little squares on social media. My job was going well, my family looked happy, and I was falling deeper and deeper and deeper into my addictions. And really throughout my whole life, I found that I had done that through geographically relocating, um, you know, trying to run away from one problem, trying to reinvent myself constantly, but never really getting to the root of why I was drinking or using in the first place. And so that's really what the memoir is about. It's chronological, you know, from the beginning and where I've been, how I've dealt with things and where I am now. 
So how did you come to discover this? Did it, did it unfold this truth? Did it unfold um, chronologically to you? Or did you have to sort that out after the fact? I really had to sort it out after the fact. Um, I, I confronted really the, the alcohol issue first. I knew that I was drinking too much. And I had known for quite a long time. And as I did the work of getting sober, I can look back now and say, oh yes, it's, it's been a problem for, you know, since I picked up my first drink at, you know, as a teenager. But at the time I really just thought it was an issue with me drinking alcohol, doing things that were not appropriate or doing things that were damaging and just having to deal with that. And it turned out that I was really managing I was self-medicating. I was using alcohol as a way to treat my depression, my anxiety, my low self-esteem, my uncomfortable feeling in um, certain situations, situations with men, situations with friends. And so that's when I started to un- uncover other other things. Again, trying to figure out how to treat my depression, how to treat my anxiety. I started working with a therapist and really started talking about my childhood and trauma that had happened when I was younger that I never dealt with. And I was really just shoveling new experiences and new things on top of all these other traumas and never actually dealing with them. And so it wasn't until after I got sober and stopped drinking and, and thought I was treating what I thought the problem was. You know, I thought alcohol was the problem. And it turns out alcohol was really my temporary solution to, to much bigger problems. Mm-hmm. The, the, it was a symptom of the exactly. trauma. Exactly. Yeah. So when you started out writing this book, did you know from the beginning that you were going to tell everything or did you start out planning to maybe hold some things back and then the, and the, it sort of evolved into a, a full life story, truth telling kind of book? How did that play out for you? Well, it really was, I thought, going to be just a journal to myself um, at first and how to work out my own relationship with alcohol. So I thought it would be maybe the previous few years. That's when I really when I really confronted the fact that I had a problem, I really thought it had escalated in the last few years and not that this was something that I've, I've had for, for years and years and years and years. And if you would have said to me then, you know, how about sharing your deepest, darkest, darkest secrets with the world? I would have said, no way. You know, I made a, I made a career out of hiding, hiding these things from people for years, hiding all of these, these things that I did end up sharing in the book. So at first it was really just a way of getting honest with myself about my drinking and the fact that I was hiding my drinking and the fact that I was drinking more than I was showing other people that, um, you know, I was drinking more than people thought I was and I had consequences. I had gotten a DUI. So aligning myself in an honest way in that place. And it wasn't until, again, I, I started working with a therapist. I started sharing in the rooms of AA. I started to talk, talking to other women in recovery that I, and I I really started doing the work to understand myself that I realized I needed to share more. Um, Not only did I want to know more about myself, but I wanted there to be something out there that someone like me could have read because as many memoirs as I read and as many stories and blogs and podcasts and all of these things that I poured myself into to just try and find myself, I, I never found my story. And I knew that other people had to 
have dealt with a lot of these things. And so I, I really just started writing and writing and learning and learning. And I just knew this is where I had to go. And that in order to heal fully, I had to start sharing the really traumatic things, not only to just connect with my own past, but connect with others and and help others to heal as well. So what's the response been to sharing those details of your life with readers? It's been really surprising in so many ways. Um, because I knew obviously that's, that's why I put it out there to be helpful. And, and I knew it would be helpful to some people, but the extent that it has been helpful has been, um, it's been affirming. Um, I, I mean, I'm so glad I did it, but it's also been a little shocking how many people have been able to connect with with some of the themes in my book with, with sexual assaults. Um, it's, I can count probably on one hand, the number of people who haven't had a connection with something. So, so I guess it's, it's affirmed my desire to have this out in the public because it was so much more needed than I thought it was. Um, it's not just about the few people out there who can connect with it. It's the fact that pretty much every woman has something that they can connect in the book, whether it's an eating disorder or traumatic history or anything, a sexual assault, sexual trauma. It's, it's really, there's something in there really for every woman. You know, what I appreciated about your storytelling, Emily, was that you were able to not lose us in the details and, I mean, you shared your personal details, but you always came back to the core message. And I feel like that is really the beauty of recovery is that when we see each other in each other's stories, you know, I don't have five kids, I had three. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and I could easily say, I'm not like you because X, Y, Z, and you're not like me. And, I, you know, we sometimes, um, Brene Brown talks about shame identities and how we we push away from the things we don't want to be. I'm not an alcoholic because I didn't do this, you know, or mm-hmm. I'm not as bad as that person. But when we really start sharing and we hear the overlap of the truth. So um, my trauma from childhood might look different than yours, but the way it made me feel was the same. And I felt like you did a really great job of not only telling your story, but connecting it to the essence of truth that that we all share. Was that something that came naturally to you or did you have to work really hard to find those connections? You know, I have a pretty science-minded way of thinking. Um, I've, I've always been a person who loves textbooks. I love documentaries. Like I love finding the truth behind things, which is ironic because obviously I was hiding from my own truth for so long. Like you always see what you want to see, right? And And it's so true when I think as in that alcoholic thinking is I always was looking for the reason I wasn't an alcoholic, even though at the heart of it, I knew I was. Um, but I, I really was so fascinated in learning about myself and why I was the way I was and why things happened for me the way they did. And once I started learning one thing, like why I learned the reason that I had you know, behaved this one certain way, or when I learned about postpartum depression, or when I learned about this, it's almost like each thing I learned unlocked another thing. And I wanted to know more. And so for me, I want, you know, facts and I want answers and I want reasons. And so for me, finding the science behind things 
was very important. Um, but also just, just finding the truth behind it, that this is what happens and this is what happens to women, or this is what happens to people because we're all humans who have brains and we have experiences and we have things happen to us that really affect us all, whether it's extreme, whether it's, you know, very minuscule or again, we're, we're all so much more similar than we are different. And you're so right that if we're looking for the differences, we'll find them. And if we're looking for the similarities, we'll find them. And I think that is what I, what I have found uh, since this book has been out is there are so many similarities. And, and I have heard that story many times. Like I, you know, my story's not exactly the same, but I totally understood how you felt. And I think that's just so important that we really understand how, we feel not ourselves, just ourselves, but how other people feel, even though they can be going through something completely different. You know, you talk about childhood trauma and I think sometimes we feel like we're dealing with things because we're able to carry them, you know, Mm -hmm. well, I'm strong because I'm carrying this. And yes, this was a terrible secret and a terrible thing that happened to me, but I'm keeping going and I'm, you know, I'm I buried it and I'm sitting on the lid. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> that was definitely my approach. Um, is that how you felt about the things in your past or did you tend to just not think about them at all? And how did that change your experience when you started to address them? You know, I think that I really, I, I was very compartmentalized. That was part of my downfall, I think, was that I didn't deal with things at all things happened. And I, again, like you said, I closed the lid and I sat on it. I didn't deal with it. I didn't look at it. I just assumed I was fine because it wasn't affecting me the way I thought it should. Maybe, um, I just assumed I, if I could carry on and I could go to class and I could act like a normal person, then it must not have bothered me when the reality was it was, it, it was trauma locked in my brain and I just wasn't dealing with it. So I think for me, I just didn't deal with it at all. And, and so it wasn't a conscious choice of I'm going to be strong and not talk about this. It was just not even acknowledging it. And my view of strength versus weakness, I, I do have to pause when I hear that because when people say to me, gosh, you were so strong dealing with this all those years. I mean, that wasn't strength to me. That was, that was shame. And really that was my weakness of not knowing what to do, not asking for help. The, when I have felt the strongest is when I have been, again, the most vulnerable, like me, me sharing details of my past with my husband or me, you know, giving this book to my mom to read, for example, like when we open ourselves up to be the most vulnerable and share the most, that has, when I have that's when I have felt the most strong. Um, so it's interesting kind of that difference is my, my view of strength is not dealing with things and carrying on and doing them yourself and not relying on anyone else. It's, it's really the exact opposite. Hmm. That, that is 100% comes back to Brene Brown and her work and flipping our ideas about shame on you know, completely upside down and saying, you know, vulnerability equals courage. Um, that's what you just said. You know, this is when I'm my strongness is when I'm allowing myself to be vulnerable. And uh, just before we went on air, I actually looked up Brene Brown because I thought of her so often as I read your book and the idea of um, unwanted shame identities and how we have these ideas from childhood about what we should be like, what we're supposed to be like, what's good and what's bad. 
And when we push away from these unwanted shame identities, we are hiding, we have secrets, we have a lot of inner turmoil, which is a lot of the life that you describe. Mm -hmm. And when we push against them, so we still hold them, we still have ideas about shame and we resist it. That's when we start, uh, or when we, sorry, when we uh, kind of lean into the shame, we start people-pleasing and shape-shifting. And I feel like that was a big part of your story too, because you were so outwardly identified um, by other people that you sort of just lost yourself in that, Um, not only in terms of your social media feed and putting a a good face on life for the rest of the world, but even in terms of relationship with men and sort of allowing yourself to be kind of hypersexualized just for the gratification of feeling wanted and attractive and validated and seen, I guess. Um, And then the place of healing is shame resilience, where the shame no longer defines us or controls us, and that's where you are today. So when we look at things in those terms, I kind of want to go back into that people-pleasing mode and sort of losing yourself. You know, the the idea of codependency really being the disease of lost self. And how do you see that as relating to your experience and your time that you spent sort of in the turmoil part of your life? Well, I would say that I, I didn't really have a very strong sense of self. And I'm sure there's lots of reasons why that could be from my childhood, but but that, that was really what I was lacking was the sense of who I was. And I think when you don't develop who you are and you don't have a strong feeling of who you are, you will absorb what other people tell you you are. And so my earliest recollection of this is really, again, when I got to high school and all of a sudden I was like the hot girl and I just threw myself into that. You know, I wanted, I was the, the popular cheerleader. And so I did the things that popular cheerleaders do or what you think they're supposed to do or this idea of, of what they're supposed to do. And, and it's comforting, even if those behaviors are negative, even if the drinking and, you know, the sexual behaviors, even if those things are negative and even if they're, um, you know, you're made fun of and you're teased and you're, you're shamed for it. Having an identity is comforting. Um, and having a group of people surrounding you who are doing those same things is comforting, even if it's negative. Does that make sense? I mean, it it sounds so backwards. Um, but really anytime I was in a situation like that, um, you know, when people were enabling the bad behavior, having that camaraderie and, and having someone tell me that it was okay or belonging, um, was still comforting enough to, to let it continue. And that's why I was, was in, you know, really detrimental relationships, relationships where they weren't healthy because I still felt like I belonged. Um, and, and even in, in my adulthood, when I was, you know, at work and, and I was getting all of these accolades and, I, I was falling into all these behaviors that weren't positive. I was drinking a lot and it was because I felt the sense of belonging and, and I was letting, really letting other people tell me who I was. And then I was just extrapolating on that by posting all the pretty photos and all of the good things and sharing all of the good things. And then it was a vicious cycle because I was making myself look better than I was to other people and knowing inside that I didn't match up to that. So I would say that that was really a theme through my whole life is trying to figure out who I was. And, and I 
did not even know who I was until I got sober. And, and so I feel like the last three years really has been finding out who I am and liking who I am and finding out what I like, what I don't like, what feels good, what doesn't feel good, what tastes good, what doesn't taste good. All of those things that you should develop through your life, I've really started learning about just in the last few years. Isn't that amazing? Because you are an accomplished person and you have a very full beautiful life. And I, I, you know, I was talking about your life in the turmoil, your time in, in the, in the turmoil years. And yet, uh, you do a really great job in your book of demonstrating how you can have inner turmoil and still have a lot of great things going on around you because you have a happy marriage. You have five beautiful children. You were having success in your career. And, um, so that's a lot of balls to keep in the air for someone who is, just doesn't even really know what they're doing and why, like doesn't know themselves. So now that you still have all of these things in your life, but you're coming at it from a place of a new level of self-awareness and self-advocacy and I guess choosing the life that you have right now, how is that different? I think that I, I put myself first in such a different way. And I think that addiction and, and and any sort of, um, you know, eating disorders, any sort, any of those behaviors, they are, they're very selfless and selfish at the same time where you're, you're putting your addiction before anyone else, but not because it's coming from this selfish place because you've put it ahead of yourself too. And I feel like in, in so many ways I'm putting myself, my sobriety first, because I know that it benefits not just me, but everybody else around me. And I really do feel like I, I can appreciate so much more about my life now because I, I can see what I've missed out on. Even just the little things, the, the having the wine at night and being able to tolerate the chaos um, and realizing that the chaos, some of the chaos is actually really cute and really fun. <laughs> and, and putting, again, putting a different filter on things. Um, I, I just view life so much differently. I view relationships so much differently. I view friendship differently. And I feel like my world has both gotten much smaller and much bigger at the same time, if that makes sense. Um, the people who are important to me, my core friends, my core family, the people who I want to spend time with and, and want to put my energy into, that has gotten smaller. Um, But yet at the same time, I feel like my message that I really want to share, uh, I feel like I have this platform that I really want to share with other people and for the people like me out there who were struggling and, and need to see that there is a better way to live. That's awesome. And I feel like when we do that, first of all, it's the scariest thing. The day you know your book goes live and people are going to read it. Yep. Okay. And I don't know about you, but I had this moment of, uh, and mine was not a memoir. So I mean, doubly, triply, infinitely. So when it's a memoir, uh, you know, I thought my book was good, but is it any good? I don't know. All of a sudden, I don't know. Like you completely lose perspective on it because you're so close to it. Um, did you have some trepidation as you sent your, your baby book out into the world to be read and, and consumed by others? Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, when, when people have, have given me feedback, it, it's, it's so affirming because even at the core, even if I knew putting this out there 
like it was beneficial for me. It was beneficial for so many people. And I knew that even if I got negative feedback or even if there were people who didn't like it, like that's not why I was writing my book and that's not who it was for. But even still, even being very grounded in knowing that this was going to be out there, there were moments where many moments where I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. Like (laughs) just joking. Like even the day before I'm like, God, am I really going to do this? And I think that's just human nature. And and we're so conditioned again to not share our shameful past, to keep our secrets secret. And, And I was so conditioned to do that, but I knew that didn't work. And so every time I had that hesitation, like having all of this secret didn't do anything for me. And, and it's so freeing now having it out there. It's like, what? I have nothing to hide. It's so great. Like you want my phone password? You want my email password? Go to town. Like there's, there's nothing to know. There's nothing else to know. I have nothing to have nothing to hide after a lifetime of trying to hide who you are is, is so freeing. Um, but you know, I think you, you definitely are putting yourself on the line in anything you do, you know, putting out a book or a blog or you with your podcast, I mean, anything you're putting yourself on the line. And I think when you do share your story, it, it's, it does make it that much more personal. And, and I've had to take that out of the equation. Like, even if someone doesn't like the book, which not everyone's going to, it's not, it's not going to be for everybody. You know, it's not like they're saying no to me or to my story or to who I am they don't like the book. They don't like the book. And, and so I think I've had a little perspective since it's been out, but, oh man, I had so many of those moments where I just thought I'm, I'm going to put on the brakes and just, I'm going to shelve this for another year because I can't do this. Now I actually had to laugh today because I saw on your um, Instagram feed that you mentioned that you actually had to block Laura McCowan for oh, yeah. a while there when you were in active addiction because yep. her message was too hopeful and too real. And, um, uh, you know, the, I often think that too, when, when it comes to our own work in the recovery realm of advocacy, that is, is someone who rejects the message might just be rejecting it for now because they're not ready to hear it. And um, it might be just that it hits a little too close to home. Right. But I do really find that, gosh, the recovery world is just so loving and supportive. And I don't know if it's because we're used to being in these sharing circles where we hold space and hear hear stories and, and love people through their dark moments, or if it's just really because we are all so vulnerable as we come here. But there really is a certain, just a beautiful level of acceptance and support and encouragement for one another that's, that's pretty spectacular, I think. Um, but you had some people reading your book close to you that are not in recovery themselves because they are not in a struggle with addiction. And by that, I mean friends and family reading your story. Um, so even knowing that um, you were telling your story to help other people that were struggling, part of the vulnerability, I suppose, comes from knowing that there's a certain mainstream audience as well. Oh, for sure. And and I've had, um, I've had obviously really interesting conversations. You know, there are some friends who are in the book who knew they would be in the book and I've talked to about that, but even still reading it, it, it made me realize how, how compartmentalized I really was. Um, you know, people like my mom who probably knew the most of anybody still didn't know everything. Even my own husband who again, knew almost everything, didn't know everything. And so it's been interesting talking to people who have been friends with me at different parts of my life or known me through different parts of my life, even for a short moment, who have said, gosh, you make so much more sense. (laughs) 
and not in a negative way, but you know, maybe, you know, I, a way I reacted to something or maybe a fallout that we had or, or whatever it is. Um, it, it's been interesting to, to see how other people see you or how refreshing it's been to other people. Like, wow, I really did think you had it all together. And, and it makes me feel like I know you so much better, or I can relate to you so much more because you've actually struggled in your life. And how many people out there maybe didn't even know I drank, which is crazy to me, but because I was so compartmentalized, I didn't show it to everybody. Um, and people didn't, who didn't know I had anything, you know, traumatic happen to me or anything negative going on in my life. It, it really just showed to me how, how, what a pretty face I was putting on and a happy face I was putting on. And and it wasn't really the full truth. So it's been, I think in all my relationships, it's, it's brought me closer to, to everybody, um, who, who really is in my life and, and the people who, you know, don't have a problem. I, you know, I hate to even say like, have a problem, don't have a problem, but I feel like Mm -hmm. even my normal drinking friends, have looked at it and, and evaluated their own relationships with alcohol or even their own past and their own trauma. And there's still something that they can take from it and relate to it. Um, so it's just been, it's been cathartic for me. And also I think for other people, it, it's helped, it's helped them understand themselves more too. Your book touches on the topic of infidelity, mm-hmm. and that's a really difficult place for people to go because it's hard to tell your story without telling someone else's in the process, mm-hmm. and sometimes a few other people's in the process because there's always a lot of people that are affected by that. I'm grateful, though, that you did talk about this in your book because um, I think a lot of people like myself that are in this role serve as a confessional for people. And so we often hear the things that they don't feel safe telling other people. Mm -hmm. And because there's a lot of codependency that goes hand in hand with addiction, I do think that there is a higher rate amongst the recovery community of people that have had to deal with infidelity in some capacity in their life. And yet they feel they can't talk about it. And it seems to be compartmentalized and carrying its own burden of shame that seems to be categorically, you know, different even than their addiction. And I think it takes a lot of people a long time to, you know, cast the shame off of that as well and talk about it as a whole part of their story. So I'm glad you touched on that. And I want to thank you for that because I know it was probably one of the harder parts of your story to tell. You mentioned two words I saw in your book and I I knew exactly where they came from. So you mentioned the words flame addiction Mm -hmm. and I recognized that immediately as the work of Dr. Scott Holtzman who um, contends that people that have a propensity for addiction also are susceptible to this other sort of process addiction when it comes to relationship and it's almost like a love addiction, but they can be, they can have an addiction like parallel experience when it comes to relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it meant to you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, I think the reason that maybe this is more of an issue now is, you know, thanks to smartphones and (laughs) we are so connected to so many other people and phones, you know, it's not face to face, so it feels less personal. And I think people can be more 
open with other people to a fault. And we get that instant dopamine hit, right? When we get that like on social media, we get that heart, we get that feedback. And so when we're communicating with people who maybe we shouldn't be communicating with, and we're getting those hits of dopamine that make us feel good from someone who, who we shouldn't be. Um, I think it's a very slippery slope that a lot of people get hooked into. And that's how really it started for me is friendship, you know, just chatting with someone casually and getting that, that feedback, even just that seeing that someone's texting you back, maybe getting something you didn't know you were missing. And maybe it's not even something that you're missing, but really just getting that feeling from someone responding to you, from someone giving you attention, doesn't matter who it is or what it's about. And so I think when people think of, you know, infidelity and they think of, you know, falling in love with other people, like that's really not usually what it's about. At least it wasn't in my experience and people I've talked to, it's that you're you're getting this reward, right? You, you send something out in the world, you send out this text, you get something back and it's like this jackpot, right? And when you're married for a long time, like you get conditioned to a certain reward and response cycle, right? Like you send a text to your husband, he sends you a text back and it's, it's normal. It's what you're used to. So if you have something somebody else interacting with you, texting with you. I think that's where a lot of these relationships start to go south is because we're not acknowledging that maybe we're missing something or maybe we're getting something from someone else. And it's, it's not necessarily the physical attraction. It's not, you know, it's not the physical relationship or even the emotional relationship. It's just this in our brain, we need the stimulus and we are, we are really affected by it. Um, so I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, I don't, I, I wonder too, if it's our alcoholics and addicts more likely to, you know, have affairs or experience infidelity, or do we just talk about it more? Because we are again in those rooms and gosh, I have heard a lot of infidelity stories in AA and in different sharing groups that I've been in. And I really never heard about it before until I went through my own experience in an affair. So it makes me wonder, like the chicken or the egg, right? Is it actually happening more? Is social media making it happen more? Or are we just talking about it more? You know, that's a good point too. You know, that's, is it a part of the human condition? And because we're in recovery and working on ourselves, we're able to talk about things that other people keep buried, um, including this. And what response did you brace yourself for <laughs> on this topic and what response did you get in reality? So the nature of, you know, what happened in our marriage, it was very public, at least locally. And so anybody who knew already knew, um, at least here and in our families, it, it was, it was pretty known. Um, but obviously there's people at, you know, at work or extended family who, you know, maybe don't know about things. And really the, the response has been only positive because more people deal with this than you would like to believe than you would like to think more people in our families have dealt with this more than you'd like to think than you'd like to believe. And we're all human beings and are affected by the same things. And so whether a couple has actually experienced this or whether they've had, they've experienced some of the slippery slope or they know somebody really close to them who's experienced this, or they just 
at the heart of it, understand how this could happen. Um, I, you know, if, if anything, it's, it's only been positive. And the reason that I, I did feel comfortable putting this in the book in the first place was when it did be, come out and become public that this had happened in our marriage, I had so many women coming to me, telling me that the same thing had happened to them. And, and people who, of course, you'd never expect, you'd never think anything was happening, everything looks fine on the surface, then it made me realize this, this was something that people go through more often than you know about, and it's so private and nobody talks about it, and there's so much shame associated with it that I felt like I was obligated. It, you know, if people already knew about this, I might as well share it with everybody because it's, it's so much more prevalent than anybody's willing to admit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's so much pain around it. And, uh, you know, on the flip side, I think too, for people who have experienced infidelity from the other side of it, I'm thinking in particular of a dear friend who's going through a painful divorce right now, and that is part of their story. And she's just really grappling to understand how did this happen? Like, who is this person I married that could do this to me, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like the more we talk about it from all sides, the more we understand. Um, And the the more we heal that part um, of ourselves, I'm speaking as a whole because I feel like we're all vulnerable, Mm -hmm. you know, to to all things. Um, The more that we can heal that, you know, the, the the more that we can sort of protect ourselves and our families too. So I think it's really important that we're able to talk about it. You know, I I talk about approval versus acceptance. So we can accept that these hard, difficult, sad things have happened and talk about them from a place of acceptance. That doesn't mean that we're saying, um, this is okay, right? Right, absolutely. <laughs> and, um, or, you know, this is no big deal. It is a big deal, but it has to be talked about in order to be healed. So I'm really, I'm really grateful to you that you brought that discussion into the limelight. And um, what is the expression about shame thrives in darkness, you know, and the truth is the light that, that helps us heal and, and helps shame go away. Yeah, secrets keep us sick, I think is my favorite. Same. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're as sick as your secrets. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those, those darn cliches, you know, those, those 12 step cliches, you want to roll your eyes. And even as you are, you're like, yeah, that's true. Uh-huh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were very much, uh, entrenched in mommy wine culture. Yes. Um, how have those relationships changed and you know how have your what do your friendships look like now what's your what do your activities and your recreation how does that look now as a person in recovery it's funny because it it really hits home how blind we are to it and I say we because I was too I wore the shirts that said wine made me do it I I had the fun mugs that said you know this may be wine um I I bought into it and it only helped me justify what I was doing, even before I knew it was a problem. And I really, I, I just kept looking for ways to make alcohol more a center of everything. Um, for me, if someone invited me to a wedding, it was about the drinking, not really about the couple, right? I, I found a way to celebrate the drinking and not necessarily the celebration. And I think for so many people, that is a problem. We assume that there's always alcohol involved in everything. And I was on board with the yoga and wine, with the art and wine, with wine, wine, wine. I, in fact, there was a restaurant near my kid's school that 
I convinced, I swear to God, I convinced them to open an hour earlier because I told them that there would be plenty of moms who would be up for a cocktail before pickup. No joke. And they did it. And so I was always looking for the caveat, always looking for the way to sneak alcohol and everything. And, and this really came into play in my friendships too. I didn't look for connection. I I looked for the cocktail and, and I would find people who would be up for a drink at any time, (laughs) people who were up for happy hour at any time, people I could call who would be more interested in drinking than in me because I was more interested in drinking than in them. Um, I just, I, I really didn't have deep relationships Um, and I think that goes back to, again, not wanting people to see who I was and not wanting to confront that I was drinking too much. And I probably knew I was drinking too much. It just really had a grip on me. So my friendships, my relationships have changed, um, a lot. There's those people who are, you know, my good friends, my, my true friends, my, you know, my best friends, whatever you want to call them, the people who've always been there for me, who are there for me now, who no amount of drinking or not drinking would change. I think we all have those people and those people are still there, you know, but I, I, I've definitely had to decrease my circle, um, dramatically and the people who I spend my time with, because I, I do have to protect that part of me that, that is there for the friendship and not the drinking. So, so that has changed a lot. The people who I do spend time with, um, it has changed and, but, but it's positive. Um, and the things I do, I mean, I still do everything I did before. I think that's what's so surprising to people gosh, what do you do if you don't drink? And it's like, um, spoiler, like you can do everything without drinking. Like you don't need the yoga or you don't need the wine to do yoga, by the way, it used to just be its own thing. Uh, you don't need, you don't need the drink for anything. And, and so instead of meeting friends for, cocktails, we go for a walk or we go work out or we would go ride bikes or we would whatever. I mean, we could do, you could do anything. You just don't have to have the wine along, you know, for the first year, I would say that I I was a little more careful in social situations. And I, I usually left early. I drove myself, like I protected my own sobriety first because I I didn't necessarily know how it was going to be. And since then, you know, I, I go to the same things I went to before. I, um, you know, again, my, my circle has, has shrunk, but I, I I still participate in life and I actually participate and I go on vacations and I remember them and I spend time with people and I remember the conversations and I can actually be present in things that I wasn't before. And I don't have to worry about getting a, a, a ride home because I can drive, Um, I find myself wanting to spend more time with my kids rather than feeling like I need to escape. Um, It's just changed. It really has changed everything about the way I spend my time, yet I can still do everything that I did before. Now, as you keep moving forward in your recovery, um, how do you stay motivated? And how do you sort of stay aligned with knowing that recovery is forever, sobriety is forever? How does that feel for you? And, and how do you sort of keep that going in your life? I think the fact that I did quit so many times and go back to it so many times, I, I have a, a really good track record of, of what it would do if I, if I brought it back into my life. You know, if I were to have a drink again and just one drink, one sip, 
Um, so I know for myself and I remind myself all the time that, that I don't look back and romanticize it and say, Oh, it wasn't that bad. Like it was real bad. And, and I think part of me being so open and so honest about it is because I knew that being secret and hiding it and not telling the whole truth did not serve me before. So I think that every day I really, I work with myself, with my higher power. Um, I journal, I meditate, I do all the things I need to do for myself, but fundamentally it just comes down to being honest with myself. And if I'm, if I'm really, if I set out the day, just being honest, even in the littlest ways, um, you know, not, not making excuses for things, not, not omitting things. Um, it, it just really, it keeps me in line every day. And, and so just stopping to pause and think about how things are going to affect me and affect other people. And then I think being on a public platform and having a book out there and, and just trying to be a voice of change, um, is something that keeps me motivated. And, you know, I'm not out there trying to rid everybody's liquor cabinets of alcohol. Like that's not, that's not my motivation. I really want to show other women that, you know, not only do you not need wine to be a mom or to be a woman or to have fun or to do anything like your life can actually be better without it. And so I really just want to be out there trying to show women that there's, there is a better way to live and there's a better way to feel. Um, you don't have to get sucked into this and you don't have to buy into it. And I think this will only change when like little by little and person by person, we really stop demanding this, this mommy wine culture just every day. That is so true. I look forward to seeing that trend pass. I don't know (laughs) if it really will, but um, I feel like young women today are smart and they are not going to tolerate this. I I feel that that they really are taking their power back and it's a beautiful thing to see. My last question for you is about your writing process Mm -hmm. and how on earth with five children in the house, you managed to put a book together. Do you write at 5 a.m. or what does your writing process look like? It is all over the place. Um, I wish I could say I had some like magic ritual, but I am very much, I've always been a writer by nature in that I always had diaries. I always journaled. Um, I'm the person who's like writing, you know, strongly worded emails and then putting them in draft and not sending them. Um, and, and just getting my thoughts out. Um, I, a lot of times will even do that to my husband. Like if we had an argument or we have a disagreement, I'll get all my thoughts down on paper or on the computer and, and really then I can work it out for myself. So I've always just been that kind of a person where I, I, I can write faster than I can, I can maybe feel things. Um, and I need it to work out my emotions. So I, I've just always sort of worked that way. But for me, it's just little bits of time. Um, I do a lot of talk to text um, in a Google document or a, a, a Google like Word document, whatever I have on my phone, even in the notes. And after I drop off the kids at school, I would just talk into it for a while. Or if something comes up that I think about it, I would talk into it. And so I really wrote for about two years and it was just this streaming long journal, basically. Um, after I'd have therapy, I'd write about it. Um, after I had AA, I would write about it, write about things that came up for me. And then really when I decided like, this is going to be a book and 
I really just had to put it all together. <laughs> so for me, I would say anybody who, if you want to write, if you think about writing, like, don't feel like you have to have a certain format or a way set aside or a place that you go or whatever, like get your, getting your thoughts out of your head, I think is just the key. And, and that's, that's what it was for me. It was just a journal basically that I put together. So little bits of time. I did a lot of talking into my phone, a lot of sitting, you know, at pickup and, and writing into my phone or, or what have you. And just little, little bits of time. And over the course of three years, it really adds up. Well, it's a great book. Uh, I found it highly engaging. Um, and uh, one of those ones, I just, I felt like a, a friend was just telling me a story over tea. And um, I really, really enjoyed your book. I highly recommend it to all our listeners. So tell our listeners where they can find you and where they can get your book. So you can find me um, on the web at emilylynnpaulson.com or on Instagram at Highlight Real Recovery, and that's real, R-E-A-L. And you can get my book, Highlight Real, Finding Honesty and Recovery Beyond the Filtered Life on Amazon or your local bookstore. Emily, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me, Jean. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame lies to hide We think you're strong Cause you'll keep it all inside It just stays and wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see old I did that Not proud but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Just want to be free from